Welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the sports podcast where we delve into the stories of teams and athletes that came close to glory but never won the big one. These teams still deserve to be recognized whether they were undone by bad timing, injuries, hubris, or just plain bad luck. They all have a tale worth telling. I'm your host, Gen Xer and sports geek Peter Shaw, and this is part two of the 1988 to 1998 Utah Jazz. We had just left off where the Jazz were disappointingly defeated by the Seattle Supersonics in the 1996 Western Conference Finals, and then the Sonics went on to lose to the Bulls. So we're going to start things off the next season. On to the 96 97 season. And they were still reflecting on the previous year, and it was tantalizingly close for the Jazz, but not all the 3.2% alcoholic beer in Utah could drown out those sad memories. Now, what they did is they took that pain and disappointment and focus into a commitment to go to the next level. They did not add any consistent contributors in the draft through trades or through free agency. And to quote the devious Donald Rumsfeld, you go to war with the army you have. And that's what Jerry Sloan and Jazz management decided to do. Their biggest off-season change was really to their logo and uniforms. They got rid of the Mardi Gras colors and Music Note logo and replaced it with a snow-covered mountain range on purple background that looked more like a rip-off of a Bush beer can. Now, trust me, I got to know that logo very well in college. But like the 1981 Bengals, the new unis went hand-in-hand with greater success immediately. The Jazz went on a 15-game winning streak after a 2-2 two and two start of the season, and were an outrageous 31-4 and four after the All-Star break. So they plowed through the regular season at an amazing clip and posted their best record ever to date, 64 wins and 18 losses. They led the Western Conference, and only one team in the whole NBA had a better record, the 69-13 and 13 Chicago Bulls. This Jazz team was again led in scoring by Malone, Stockton, Horney, and Brian Russell. Big Greg Ostertag had seven rebounds and two blocks a game. So the key was not a fun place to be if you were a visiting player looking to drive. Now they had a very solid bench to spell the starting team with Howard Isley, wide body Antoine Carr, personal pod fave, Shandon Anderson, and aging, aging net Chris Morris. Now all told, they were the number two scoring team in the NBA and the ninth best defensively as far as points allowed. So they were they were balanced. They went into the first round of the playoffs as the number one seed and faced the L.A. Clippers in a best of five in the first round. They swept these mediocre clips in three by an average of almost 12 points. When I say the clips were mediocre, that is an overstatement. They made the playoffs even though they were 10 games under 500 and were led by Loy Vaught in scoring. Who is Loy Voigt, you ask? Exactly. So on to the second round where they were host to the Lakers, who were only able to manage one more win than their lowly neighbors. The Jazz won that series 4-1 to and made Shaquille O'Neal's first year in L.A. a disappointing one. At that point, Shaq was 24 years old, and he had an 18-year-old phenom named Kobe Bryant joining him, but they did not yet have their act together. And even when they were supported by Nick Van Exel, and my man from Temple, Eddie Jones, as well as big shot Robert Horry, who seemed to always be in the right place at the right time on the best team. Their time was to come later, but this was not their year at all. Now, the Western Conference Finals saw the Jazz face the long-in-the-tooth Houston Rockets. I know Rockets don't actually have teeth, but just go with it. So they were the NBA version of the Wild Bunch, that very violent 1969 Western directed by Sam Peckinpah about 
a group of aging bandits who go for one more big score. Now, the 34-year-old Hakeem Olajuwon and his team were two years removed from their back-to-back NBA titles, and um, they brought in the aging but still productive 33-year-old Charles Barkley from Phoenix for a little bit of offensive punch and probably some good quotes as well in the media. Now, Charles had a pretty solid year and was second in scoring behind Hakeem for the Rockets, and the team still featured 34-year-old Clyde Drexler, 34-year-old Kevin Willis, and a very sprightly 33-year-old Mario Ellie. The only starter younger than 33 was UPenn alumnus point guard Matt Maloney. Go Quakers! The next year, they would go on to have the second oldest roster in NBA history, but this year they were just freaking old too. And much like the Wild Bunch, it wasn't going to end well for them. The home team held serve easily through the first games, and the Jazz led 3-2. to two. But Game 6 was in Houston, and it was a tense and tight affair with the score tied at 80 after 3. The Jazz rode their starters most of the way, and they all scored at least 15 points, with Stockton leading the way with 25 and Malone right behind him with 24 along with 11 boards. The, the Jazz were able to grind out the victory in a close fourth quarter, finishing the game 103-100. to The Jazz were finally Western Conference champions. The Jazz were finally given the honor of squaring off in the NBA Finals against the only team with a better regular season record, the Bulls. This was the same team that coach Jerry Sloan played for years before and earned his rep as a uh, tough-as-nails defender. Now he was coaching the enemy. Even if you didn't see the last dance on ESPN, you know these Bulls. Jordan, Pippen, Tony Kukoc, Ron Harper, Dennis Rodman, and the ginger Aussie tower Luke Longley. As always, they had a great supporting cast led by a scrappy group of characters like Steve Kerr, Judd Buechler, Bison Deli, who uh, the player formerly known as Brian Williams, who would later sadly be lost at sea. Throw all those guys together, and that was a great lead group and a great supporting cast. Jordan and the Bulls, as always, were on a mission. But the Jazz led in Game 1 by one point with 51 seconds left in Chicago. Is Aaron has tied the game? with a free throw, and then went on to later hit a game-winning 19-footer to squeak out an 84-82 to win. And the Bulls were confident, but they knew these Jazz meant business. Unfortunately for Utah, Game 2 was not nearly as competitive. Jordan put up 38 points, and the Bulls led by as high as 19 after three quarters, eventually winning by 12, 97-85, and took a 2-0 series lead to Salt Lake City. Game three, the Jazz were in their cozy home arena, and they turned the tables, taking a 16-point lead themselves into halftime and cruised to a 104-93 win, showing they were not going to go down quietly. Now, Game four in Utah was a defensive struggle from the start, with the Bush Mountain men holding Jordan to a mediocre 22 points. That's mediocre for him. And the Bulls were up by a college-type halftime score of 40-35. to Now, after that, the Jazz men went down 73 to 69 with two minutes left, and things looked grim. But all of a sudden, the Utah D clamped down on the Bulls, and Stockton and Malone just lit it up and were able to get to the free throw line a bunch of times. The Jazz ended up scoring the last nine points of the game, with Brian Russell putting the icing on the cake with a last-second dunk. Jazz 78, Bulls 73. These Jazz were rejuvenated, and they wanted to take the lead in the series by sweeping the Utah dates. Remember, back then, the NBA was 2-3-2 series sequence, so Game 5 was still in Utah. Now, Game game 5 was an epic struggle. This was known as the Jordan Flute game, so Jordan was battling both the Jazz double teams and the flu with high fever, shaking chills, and dehydration. This game was tight throughout with five ties, 
but the Jazz led most of the way. Jordan tied the game at 85 with a free throw with 46 seconds left, and 21 seconds later, the Bulls took the lead for good with a Jordan 3. He ended up with 38 points, 7 boards, 5 assists, three steals, and a bad fever. The Bulls prevailed 90-88 on the road, but the, the Jazz felt confident that they could take the next game in Chicago to force a Game 7. Now back in the city of Big Shoulders, which for my money is a much cooler nickname than the Windy City or the Second City, Game 6 was lining up to be another clash of the Titans. The Jazz came in to play hard again and were up by 7 at the half and 6 after 3 quarters on the road. The Jazz scored the first 3 points of the 4th quarter to go up by 9, but the Bulls stopped them in their tracks and answered with 10 points in a row with Kerr and Pippen hitting back-to-back 3s and each contributing half of the points in that run. Now from there, the game was neck and neck with 3 ties, the final tie being 86-86 to with 1.44 left on the clock after a Brian Russell 3 tied the game. Now to remain that way until 28 seconds left when Rodman rebounded and Anderson missed the layup and the Bulls called timeout to set up a play. The ball of course was in Jordan's hands on the left wing when he drove on Russell who was guarding him very tightly. Stockton came over to help out and Jordan calmly dished to Kerr near the top of the key who proceeded to drain the go-ahead jumper with one second left on the shot clock and five on the game clock. The Jazz had one last chance but Pippen intercepted a, a Brian Russell pass, fed it to Kukoc for a gratuitous layup at the buzzer, and the game was over. The Bulls triumphed 90-86 and were repeat NBA champs. Jordan scored 39 and was the series hero and the finals MVP, averaging over 32 points for the whole series. Now, how many more shots at the title do you think the Jazz could have? How much did they have left in the tank? I mean, come on. On to the 97-98 season. Once again, the Jazz front office and Jerry Sloan did little to tinker with the race card that brought them two games from the finish line. Stockton was in his 13th year, as was Antoine Carr. Malone was in his 12th. Hornacek was in his 11th. So father time was definitely uh, nipping at their heels and catching up. The season didn't start off as planned with Stockton missing the first 18 games with a knee injury, and the Jazz only went 11-7. But after Stockton returned, They went back to their past successful form and won 31 out of 36 final games after the All-Star break. They won the Midwest Division and had the best record in the Western Conference by one game over the rising Lakers and Sonics with a 62-20 record. The Mailman did a lot of the heavy lifting again, averaging 27 points per game, while Stockton and Hornacek were the only other players to score double digits for that team. The Bulls once again had the best record in the East with 62 wins in what would be Michael Jordan's last year with the team. And it looked like these teams were heading for another collision course in the finals. In the first round, the Jazz faced the Rockets, who were last year's conference finals opponent, and they were now the eighth seed. The Rockets were essentially the same team they faced a prior year, but a year older and averaged 33 years of age. And that was old in biblical times, and that's old in the NBA. So the Rockets did have a disappointing year by their standards as they were starting to slide downhill slowly, but they were ready for the playoffs winning Game 1 in Utah by a shocking 13 points. The Jazz won at home in Game 2, but lost in the first game in Houston all of a sudden found themselves down 2-1 to one to a team they roughed up the year before that was even older and more decrepit, and they were one game away of heading home back to the mountains of Bush. Now the Jazz got into gear, however, and won Game 4 in Houston by 12, and closed out the series at home with a 14-point relatively easy 
easy victory. Malone averaged close to 27 points the entire series to lead the team and was able to obviously maintain his ongoing regular season productivity into the playoffs. Their opponents in the Western Conference semifinals were the San Antonio Spurs. Now, these Spurs were one year away from a strike-shortened season where they would win the NBA title, so they were definitely a champion in the making. They had Twin Towers Tim Duncan and David Robinson, and they led the way all year for the Spurs. Now, the Spurs, fun fact, were one of four ABA teams who joined the NBA in the merger in 1976. The roster was filled out by Vinny Del Negro, Avery Johnson, and J. Ron Jackson. Back to the ABA. Bonus points if you can quickly name the other three ABA teams to join the NBA and who are still in existence. That's right, Pacers, Nuggets, and the New York, now then New Jersey, now Brooklyn Nets. The Jazz won the first two games at home in very tight contests, but the Spurs exacted some revenge in the Alamo Dome with an 86-64 blowout win in Game 3. Sadly for the Jazz, Malone was the only player to break 10 points. I mean, that's the... That's the definition of an NBA beatdown. But the revenge was short-lived, meaning the Jazz won the last two games with comfortable leads, winning by 9 and 10, and they closed out the Spurs in 5. So they were on to the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers one round later than the previous year. The first game, the Jazz threw down the gauntlet and blew L.A. out of the water by 35, 112 to 77. I can't imagine the Shaq-Kobe conversation in the locker room was pleasant for anybody around. And the Lakers, at that point, never fully recovered. Shaq and Malone went shot for shot and both averaged over 30 points per game for the series. But unfortunately for the Lakers, the series was only four games long, and they didn't win one of them. So the Jazz swept them back to the coast and put away their brooms. Western Conference champions once again. Now Utah didn't have a long time to celebrate as they were due to face the Bulls in the NBA Finals for the second straight year. But this year could be different because the Jazz actually had home court advantage. There was much anticipation around this series, even above a regular NBA Finals, as the world knew Jordan was probably not going to be back on the Bulls and that dynasty was done. So the winds of change were in the air and the Jazz wanted to send Michael out on a losing note. Game 1 in the Delta Center in Utah was going according to plan for the Jazz and they led by 8 going into the 4th quarter. In the final stanza, however, the Jazz were flat once again. I keep using that cliche, that pun, and the Bulls held them to just 12 points. Now, the Jazz still held a four-point lead into the final minute, but Pippen hit two free throws, and Luke Longley, of all people, tied the game with a short jumper to force overtime. In the extra period, Stockton single-handedly outscored the Bulls 7-6, to with Malone kicking in one field goal at the start of OT. Now, the Jazz, by the end of OT, were exhausted but triumphant. And on the scoreboard, it said Jazz 88, Chicago 85. Game 2 in Utah saw the Jazz holding on to a very tight three-point lead going into the fourth quarter. But the Bulls had Jordan. And Jordan put up 39 and held the Jazz to 15 points in the fourth quarter. And they went on to win by 5, 93-88. So it was 1-1. And they're going back to the United Center in Chicago. And the Bulls fans smelled blood. They could win all three games in Chicago. The series would be over, and the Bulls will have won, would have won six NBA championships in eight years. Now, the way the Jazz played in that game, it was feeling pretty likely that they would be crushed the rest of the series. Utah shot only 31% from the field and scored only 54 points for the whole frickin' game. Jordan scored 24, 
and the but the Bulls won by 42, 96 to 54. So down 2-1, the Jazz were feeling desperate in game four. They did themselves proud, however, but Jordan put up 34 and Pippen 28, but the mailman tallied just a team high of 21. And when that happens, you're going to lose. And the Jazz did 86 to 82. So the Bulls were now up 3 to 1, and Chicago was rowdier than St. Patty's Day downtown. I mean, I lived in Chicago at the time, and believe me, the whole city was amped up and rocking every single night during that series. Now, could the Bulls end the series and the season in the United Center? That was the big question. Now, Malone knew it was now or never, so he almost single handedly willed the Jazz to a tight 83. To 81 victory in the next game. He put up 39 and got nine boards to lead everyone. And the only other Jazzer sides that had a really great double digits was timeless Wichita, Wichita State shocker Antoine Carr, who got 11 in the paint. Now, Tony Kukoc actually stepped up and led the Bulls with 30 points, with Jordan a step behind to 28. But the Jazz would live to fight another day. Back to the land of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and low alcohol beer and great skiing. And now for a short break. This podcast is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. At Cigar City Brewing, we make the beer we like to drink and toast those who choose to drink with us. Whether it's the full flavor of High Lie IPA or the lighter-bodied High Low IPA, Cigar City Brewing has you covered for any occasion that calls for handcrafted beer. Find out more at CigarCityBrewing.com. Cigar City Brewing, Tampa, Florida. Please enjoy responsibly. Now back to the podcast. Game six was compelling and close from the opening tip. Utah led by three after one, they led by four after two, and led by five after three. In the fourth quarter, it was a seesaw game and there were five ties, the last of which was created when MJ hit two free throws at 59 seconds left to knot the game at 83 all. Stockton then came down and hit a three with 40 seconds left. Jordan came down and scored on a layup four seconds later to make it a one-point game. Then Jordan stole the ball from Malone on a pass and hit the now iconic jump shot over Brian Russell with five seconds left to put the Bulls ahead, 87-86. to 86. The Jazz called timeout and ran a play to try to get the victory with five seconds left. So the play ended up with the ball in Stockton's hands. A screen was set at the top of the key, and he let fly a three-pointer as time expired. The ball hit the front of the rim and bounced out. And air was sucked out of the building as the Bulls were crowned champs and the Jazz were done. Now, there were 18 ties and eight lead changes in that game. But in the end, the fourth quarter was quintessential Jordan. He got 16 points in the fourth quarter and 45 for the whole game. The Bulls had won six titles in eight years. And their era was over. But was it also over for the Jazz? The aftermath. The next offseason, they once again did not draft any real franchise players to boost the Jazz scoring or even their defense and picked up no big splash free agents. Their biggest move was bringing back 37-year-old Thurl Bailey out of retirement to play for them. And that's never a good sign when that's your big move. Now, in the 1998-99 strike-shortened season, they were still pretty solid and they actually tied the Spurs for the best record in the Midwest and the best record in the West, but the Spurs won a tiebreaker to finish ahead in overall standings. The top scores for the Jazz were the same four players you know well by now. So in the first round, the Jazz hosted a very tough Sacramento Kings team, 
these Kings gave him all they could handle, but the Jazz pulled it out with a tough five-game series victory after facing elimination in Game 4 when they were down 2-1. to one. In the next round, they were beaten in six by a young, balanced Portland Trailblazers team. The next year, moving forward, 99-2000, they came in first in the Midwest, but were knocked out of the playoffs in the second round by the Blazers again. When it came to the turn of the century, 2000-2001, they lost Hornacek, but the other core remained, and they had another second-place finish in the Midwest, but sadly lost in the first round to the ascending Dallas Mavericks in five. The next year, in 2001-2002, they dropped to fourth place and didn't get past the first round again, losing to the Kings. They still had Malone and Stockton leading from the front, but at 38 and 39 years old, they were no longer able to go deep into the playoffs in the way that they had almost become used to. The next year was a carbon copy, and the last one in Utah for the Hall of Fame duo of Stockton and Malone together. They had a fourth-place finish and a first-round loss to the Kings. You get the pattern. They were done contending. Stockton retired at the age of 40 after an incredible incredible 19 years with the Jazz. Then Malone decided to try one more year, try to win a title with the Lakers, but that was an ill-fated year. The Lakers did go to the NBA Finals but lost to the Pistons, and then Malone retired. Stockton was on the All-Star team in his career a total of 10 times, was on the All-Defensive team 5, and averaged 13 points, 10.5 assists, and 2.2 steals for his entire career. Not bad for a 6-1 kid with jacked-up short shorts from Gonzaga before Gonzaga was an NCAA tournament upset favorite your girlfriend and clueless roommate liked to pick for their brackets. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009, not shockingly, and retired as the all-time assist leader with 15,806. That is almost 4,000 more than number two on the list, Jason Kidd. He's also the NBA career leader in steals ahead of Kidd, so not a bad career for Stockton, but I'm sure he wanted to win a title. Malone was an all-star 14 times during his career and on the all-NBA team just as many times, so you could say he has just an impressive a resume. He was all-defense four times, one less than Stockton, was twice the NBA MVP and averaged 25 points and 10.1 rebounds per game over his entire 19-year career. He retired as number seven on the all-time rebound list as well. So you had these two Hall of Fame studs, and they played a record 1,412 regular season games together as teammates. And many of Stockton's assists resulted from passes to Malone, and some regard them as the best pick-and-roll combination ever. Not quite as legendary, but a fixture for all 11 of his years in in the NBA in Utah was Mark Eaton, He led the NBA in blocks four years and was on the all-defensive team five times and was two-time defensive player of the year. Um, You could say he was quite a scary presence in the lane, blocking an average of 3.5 shots per game for his entire career. Pretty impressive, even though we didn't talk about him much in the latter part of the podcast. Thurl Bailey was a versatile forward. He averaged 14 points and and 5.5 rebounds during his tenure with the Jazz, and we know left the Jazz after the 93-94 season, after nine years with the team and came back for a short stint. Jerry Sloan retired in 2011 after an amazing 23 years as the head coach of the Jazz and three years prior to that as an assistant. Truly a spectacular coaching run. His NBA coaching career record, including a stint with the Bulls from 79 to 82, was 60% win percentage, 1,221 wins and 803 losses. He retired in 2011, as I mentioned, And after that, he was a consultant for the Jazz here and there, and then sadly 
died very recently at the age of 78 in May of 2020 from complications from Parkinson's disease, which he was diagnosed with in 2016. He was a real legend for the Bulls, and he'd been a bigger legend as a coach for the Jazz, and he will be sorely missed because he was a straight shooter and really one of the best coaches of his era. The Jazz would make the playoffs for the next five years, but you could really see the slow decline. They lost in the Western Conference semifinals for two years in a row, and then were knocked out in the first round for three more before failing to make the playoffs at all for three years starting in 2003-2004. They've only made the playoffs in 50% of their season since that, since that time. However, they did make one more run to the Western Conference Finals in 2006-2007 when they were led by Duran Williams, Carlos Boozer, and Russian Andriy Kirilenko. They did end up losing to the eventual NBA champ San Antonio Spurs, who were led up front by Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, and my favorite Argentine hoopster of all time, Manu Ginobili, losing four games to one. Now, other than that, the Jazz have not made it past the semifinals since their glory years, where they pushed the Bulls to the edge but ultimately failed. In closing, there you have it, a great squad with one of the most awkwardly named teams in the NBA, and how and why they never lifted the NBA trophy to date. They did have an amazing Hall of Fame core, a great coach for many years in Jerry Sloan, and an amazing run of playoff appearances, but they seemed to lack that killer instinct to get the trophy, and just when they had their best team assembled, and all those savvy veterans playing in perfect sync, they had the bad timing of playing a Michael Jordan-led Bulls team that was not going to let themselves lose ever. And for your uni watchers out there, they did get rid of those Bush Mountain logos that, uh, in 2004 and got back to the much better Mardi Gras-like color scheme with blue instead of purple in 2010. Thank goodness for that. Well, that's all for this installment of the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Peace out. The Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast is a Pug and Monkey production. As always, thanks to El Lobo and his band Checky Brown for letting us use their song Hippie Boy as our theme song. Hit it, guys.